Welcome to The Family Room, sponsored by Versprite, where we offer hope, encouragement, truth, and wisdom for families, centered on biblical truth and Catholic teaching, because God's kingdom begins at home. Now welcome your hosts, Mari, John, and Craig, here on AM 1160 The Quest, your Atlanta Catholic Radio. Welcome into the family room. We are so glad you are joining us again this week. This is Mari. I'm here with Craig today. Hey, Craig. Mari, what's going on? Well, I'm sad because we don't have John here today with us. And now it, it lessens the show without John for sure, but I, I think we'll, we'll, get, we'll grind through it. We will. We will. Fortunately, we have a great guest today, so that's always great. So I'm excited because psychology was one of my majors in college. And so I'm fascinated by That's a lot why of... you scare me. <laughs> you should be very scared. <laughs> but that's one of the reasons that um, I'm fascinated by the work of our guest today. Um, so psychology scares you? Uh, only when somebody's psychoanalyzing me. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Yeah. Uh -huh. now, now, yeah, I think it's it's awesome because you've got you've got uh, Dr. Pat Fagan who's come out of that science, but then got into politics in, in a way of trying to influence yeah. political thinking because yeah. of and he'll go into the details why but it's interesting the way he's been able to bring out facts mm. to bring out truth yes whether we want and we talked about it you know prior to the show we may not want to hear the the truth, the truth right. but there are facts behind it yeah but it all points back to god i mean that's yes. the beauty of how how i think this interview is going to go how he winds it all back to god yes in our initial initial what um, created natures. Yeah, I love how you just described that, and it goes along very much with how Dr. Pat Fagan will describe it as well. So talking about going back to God, as all our listeners know, we always start with prayer. So Craig, would you open us in prayer, and then I will introduce Dr. Pat Fagan. Uh, absolutely, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, dear Lord, we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for being with us, for guiding us, for directing us, for being truth. We just ask you to open the hearts of us here in the studio and of our listeners that we can hear truth and learn how to lovingly take that truth, sit with you, ask you if if it's relevant for our lives that we need to change, we need to become more holy, and then go out to the world and bring that truth in a loving, caring, and gentle way to the rest of the world so that others around us can see the truth, whether it's our faith or whether it's biological truth or whether it's social science truth, whatever it is, Lord, that your truth will always guide us and direct us. And we just pray in Jesus' holy name with Mary's intercession. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Amen. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Good luck yeah. on the intro. That's an awfully long introduction. <laughs> well, I'm going to pick and choose because there's some <laughs> fascinating things and we'll actually hear more as we go through. But we are so glad to have Dr. Pat Fagan with us here in the family room today. Um, he is originally from Dublin, Ireland. So we were talking about um, all wonderful things about Ireland before we started the show, <laughs> which was great. Of course, Craig's favorite part of that conversation were the pubs in Ireland. So, yeah, yeah. It's a social experiment. It is. It's a, Well, it's a great way for community, right? Um, so Dr. Fagan trained as a psychologist before he then practiced in Canada for five years as a child, family, and marriage therapist. And then he came to American University to pursue doctoral studies in clinical psychology. But fascinatingly enough, um, when he was, he was actually still practicing, and one of his clients, he realized that there was a 
federally funded program that was undermining the family life of one of his clients. And he realized that there was more opportunity to start influencing the folks on Capitol Hill. And so he switched fields. And I think that's going to be a really cool story to hear from him. So he started to use the social sciences in the public discourse, once again, bringing that truth into where it can be used. So he worked at the Free Congress Foundation. Then he also worked for Senator Dan Coats of Indiana. Um, Then he was actually Deputy Assistant Secretary for Family and Community Policy at the HHS under George H.W. Bush and later at the Heritage Foundation, which a lot of people have heard about, as the first fellow in Family and Culture Studies. And then after 13 years there, he went to the Family Research Council to found the Marriage and Religion um, Research Institute called MARI. I like that they named it after me. (laughs) Yeah, a shout out to MARI. Yeah, really. But it's MARI with two R's, M-A-R-R-I dot U-S there. And um, so instead of writing books on social science findings, which only a small number of people would end up purchasing and maybe even reading, he launched an online encyclopedia called maripedia.org. Um, and that has generated thousands of hits per month. So very cool. Lots of um, neat ways that uh, Dr. Fagan has allowed God to to use him and his interests. So Dr. Fagan, welcome into the family room. We are so thankful that you are joining us today. Oh, it's really great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's a pleasure. Before we dive into the specifics of your science and your studies and everything else, um, you know, we always say our listeners love to hear people's faith stories because some are cradle Catholics and, okay, I can relate. Others are converts that, oh, wow, now they can relate to that. Do you mind sharing some of your faith story, especially as an Irish Catholic? Sure. Well, I grew up in a good Irish Catholic family. Mom and dad were good practicing Catholics and um, raised us well. I think we gave them a hard time. Uh, dad <laughs> I was hope a so. Driver. Uh, my mother was a you know homemaker, seven kids, uh, so that kept her busy. Um, in a working class area, but a, a nice working class. It was a great place to grow up. Um, good friends on the road. All went to Catholic schools of one form or other because the the religious orders were the main teachers in Ireland. Um, not the soul, but the main by far, between the nuns and the brothers, different orders. And I went to Irish Christian Brothers, gave me a great education. Um, thought I might be a brother, but uh, I gave that thought up uh, quickly enough. <laughs> um, and then, actually, I went into teaching for two years, uh, loved it, and then realized I'm never going to earn much here. Because actually the the religious orders ran most of the schools, so your chances mm. of going higher were limited. And I had loved the interaction with the kids. Decided to go into uh, psychology and then quickly into clinical psychology. And the quickest way there, which was graduate work, but the quickest way was to do a social science degree. I could do that in three years rather than a science degree, which I was in a way very interested in. But that would have taken four. So I took the quick road. And it was I'm glad I did because, um, and this has a lot to do with my faith journey. The first day I applied to social science, they took it. This was in University College Dublin in 1966. They admitted 100 every year. So I was going in first day, first lecture, and walk into this room, you know, theater style. Mm-hmm. I look around and say, oh, my goodness, they're all women. 
guys. <laughs> there were five guys up at the, you know, at the, at the topmost, uh, the highest, uh, the back of the uh, theater. So I go up there and sit down beside this big guy, beard, leather jacket. Uh, he was a, an electrician, fully qualified electrician, who was returning. It was coming to college. He wanted to become a labor leader, mm. and. Uh, and he was a banjo playing, rugby playing, motorcycle riding, man's man, if ever there was one. And he was a celibate member of Opus Dei. Huh. I didn't know that at the time. But he had a huge influence on me, just out of friendship. You know, we, mm. he's, he's a great singer. He's great. He was just great fun and a real man's man. And there were a bunch of other guys with them who were all tradesmen. And I became good friends with them. And uh, gradually got to know Opus Dei through them, and that had a huge effect on me and many, many things, and he did too. So that was my first day in college. Um, later, I met St. Jose Maria, the founder of Opus Dei, when he was still alive. That was in 1972. Met him four times in one week, <laughs> I got in a, uh, which was great. Um, and so that shaped my life immensely. And gave me, at the same time, I was digging deep, where my faith actually had a huge effect uh, during, in 1968, during the summer I was bartending in New York, because the J-1 visa had started, you could earn a lot more. I could I could earn enough working hard for a summer to get through two years of college paying wow. everything. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, so I did that. When I went back uh, in 68, in August, Humanae Vitae came out. Mm. In in October was when the um, Michaelmas term started. That's when college began in Ireland and all across England. Um, and I realized then the seminaries in Dublin were split, um, just as happened all around the world. The church split on Humanae Vitae. Now, for me as a social scientist and as a you know committed Catholic, um, because I remember when it came out, I said, oh, well, this is tough, but Pope has spoken, the Church has spoken, so, you know, <laughs> argument is over. But then back in the social sciences, I was concerned in case, in some good research, there would be a conflict between the social science data and what the Church teached, mm. was teaching mm. on, on that. It comes out in fertility and demographic studies and all the rest. And I remember the first time, this was of the January 69, August 68 was the thing. By January 69, I was reading the first paper where I thought this might be the case. So I, was, I wasn't I was sweating bullets, but I was a bit anxious to see what's going to come because this was a potential conflict between faith and science. Yeah. And uh, so I read it, and I saw the way the author, who was an eminent professor, I saw the data. You can see that in the data charts and all the rest. I saw his conclusions. I didn't agree with his conclusions, and I found nothing in his data that caused me problems. Mm, interesting. He had his way of interpreting it, uh, and I saw the way he went. But the data itself, which he was very honest, you know, was there. Well, I had a number of those instances, and by June, I had six. Uh, there were six papers I had read where that detention conflict was there. By the fifth or sixth, I could see the way it was going. Yeah, I saw the way that what these guys were saying. 
But I look into the data. There's nothing in the data that contradicted the church's teaching. So for those um, listeners who don't know what the teaching that came out in Humana Vitae, would you summarize that real quickly for them, um, for all of yeah, us, Dr. Pagan? it reiterated Pagan? the Christian teaching that contraception is a grave human evil. Mm. I'd go further, actually, uh, because Paul VI in it predicted what would happen yeah. if contraception became widely used. Now, in the social sciences, the predictive, what's called predictive validity, if your theory holds up in predicting what's going to come, then the theory is stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, if you analyze something and if repeatedly, there's not a, he was in that sense, Paul VI wasn't a social scientist. And this, another thing too, the Humanae Vitae is not derived from revelation. It's derived from um, the moral law, mm. natural law. If you read it, you'll see that. Because there's nowhere in the Bible that's explicit. The closest it gets is onanism, you know, the withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, and that's all. Mm-hmm. But from the beginning in Christianity, we have plenty of the, the churches always, and right down to all of Christianity, even after the Reformation, all of Christianity held to that. And the big break came with Lambeth Conference, the Anglicans in 30, which was immediately responded to by, I think it was Pope uh, Pius XI, it came back with um, an encyclical answering that in 1931. I think it was January, just a couple of months. So the Catholic Church kept reiterating, and Paul VI then came out with that, and a lot of bishops, even whole national bishops' conferences, you could see they weren't in agreement with the Pope, and they were holding back and saying different things and all the rest. And It was a big blow to humanity, and the lack of staying faithful on this has had a deleterious effect on the Church. Mm. And we still see that battle is going on today, even deep within the Catholic Church on matters sexual. But that was a big area. All of Paul VI's predictions actually came true. I thought they would take 100 years. Within 25 to 30 years, they were coming through. Wow. The effect on humanity of not, as it were, obeying our sexual nature, aligning ourselves fully with our sexual nature, is quick and brutal. Yeah. And we see it out of wedlock births. Our abortion came very quickly after that, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that had a huge effect in shaping both my faith and my social science. Yes. Yeah, so if you are just joining us, we are here with Dr. Pat Fagan, and he is with he has founded some uh, an institute called the Marriage and Religion Research Institute. And as you hear, his own. Um, his own faith journey started to inform some of that as well. So this is absolutely fascinating. What was fascinating is being able to take the science and the debate Mm -hmm. and being open-minded and pointing back to the truth where so many people try to walk out of the truth. It sounds like uh, Dr. Pat's faith actually grew because he found nothing counter to it. And then now you look forward, you look, you go forward and you find out, Oh, wow. Paul the six was totally right on this stuff. Yeah. Maybe I should listen to these guys, or maybe the church has got something figured out. <laughs> yeah. So, is you know, there... I want to, yeah, if I please. could come in with an extra comment there, it did help my faith grow and sort of solidify it. Yeah. Again. But it also improved me as a social scientist. Mm. 
I was I was deeply studying. I had to analyze that deeply. I was going up against, as it were, you know, highly published guys, and so it sharpened. Yeah, faith sharpens with faith and reason. They sharpen each other. Right, and you I know, love it's that fasc- yeah, exactly. And it fascinating to me was that um, you said, okay, the, here was the data, and then here's how he uh, came to his conclusion, and it didn't quite match. So nobody else was noticing that there was a disconnect between what the data said and what his interpretation of the data was? Well, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. I don't. I think what happens to all of us, um, even when data comes out, we jump onto the stuff that we agree with. Ah, uh, yeah. That, that, that's a part of human nature. I remember, fast forward, uh, another man who had a huge effect on my life. Uh, was John Boyd, who mm-hmm. was the top gun of all top guns ever, the designer of the F-15, the F-16, military reform, and uh, the United States, the way it fights battles. Uh, being here in Washington, he was in Washington. Long story short, we became friends. Mm-hmm. He taught me something, or that that he pointed out something, that the most important data for a scientist is the data that doesn't fit. Mm. That's where you learn. That's where the breakthroughs are made. Now that, you know, you've got your own conceptions and you think actually that, you know, whatever, this is the way things work and all the rest. And then this bit of outlying data. Is, ah, and most people are inclined to dismiss it because it's frequently, well, but a real scientist will pay attention to it. Now, it could be false data or it could be just that random end of the bell curve stuff mm-hmm. that's why you you treat it with uh with reverence almost mm-hmm. as where you double check and then sometimes it's appropriate to dismiss it uh, other times no, no no this data is holding firm so whatever's going on there i don't understand therefore my theory needs correction uh-huh. so now you go in and this is how scientific breakthroughs are made and it was john boyd to point out the most important he had a great he was a military um, later in his career, he was on the lecture circuit a lot too, a lot within the military. And sometimes he was introduced as a military analyst. Uh-huh. And uh, he would turn to the person, general or whatever, who'd introduced him <laughs> with a severe face. He'd say, you know, I'm not used to being insulted when I'm being introduced. <laughs> the lieutenant colonel, whoever was introduced. He said, you just call me an analyst. That's to call me a half-wit. Analysis <laughs> is only half the game. Synthesis is the other half. Oh. Uh, he went down. Yeah. That's but awesome. that's synthesizing, pulling all the data in, making it all work together. That's the important stuff. Well, and that, I mean, to me, that speaks to our faith journey. I mean, yeah. it, in a very scientific manner, it does, right? Why? Number one, we're supposed to keep learning. We're supposed to keep delving in. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you remind me, and, and we talked about something earlier, too, about how Oh, well, if I read something coming from a certain group of people, I either won't read it or I may just totally dismiss it and I may be missing things. But just being open minded and frankly, in prayer, you know, Lord, what do I need to pivot on? What do I need to change? And it may not line up with what I believe, Mm -hmm. but how do you keep going into the faith and reason? Yeah. Which our church seems to have encompassed better than uh, any other that I know of. Oh, sure. That's the whole, like the university system grew out of the Catholic Church. This is the pursuit of faith and reason. You see, ultimately what we have, and Catholics have it, 
more than the other Christian groups, because, you know, there was Luther was highly skeptical and doubting of reason. Uh, we never were. Uh, so we've kept that integration of faith and reason mm. all the time. Ultimately, what's behind it all, there is no conflict between God's law and God's creation. Mm-hmm. What he has revealed to us and what he tells us is true and good, and the way his creation operates. God can't contradict himself in one part of his of everything he has made, and that's ultimately what the huge ace in the hole that a Catholic has in going into science, any of the sciences. A good Catholic is always open to the data, to the thing, and then to reconcile that with reason and ultimately knowing there's going to be no conflict. For instance, uh, on, on, on the theory of evolution, the Church has always sort of said, well, look, we, you know, we, we don't take a stand on that. You just let the data come out. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and on all of these things, on all the sciences, the Church doesn't teach what the science says, but the Church does teach reason, and it does teach the moral law, which is about the nature of man. And there it has a real competence for many reasons, uh, the biggest being the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But the other is 2,000 years of, uh, <laughs> of lots of <laughs> learning, digging into it, writing Thomas, and then Thomas Aquinas, Augustine coming along, Thomas Aquinas coming along, and all the other great intellects that have grappled. It's very interesting for me to see Jordan Peterson, who everybody knows about, mm-hmm. who's on a fate journey. There's yeah. no doubt. <laughs> yeah. and, and he's a scientist, absolutely brilliant psychologist. I, I don't know any psychologist who knows as much social science as that man does. Uh, he's, he's still on a journey, however. He doesn't have it all yet. Yeah. Uh, for instance, he doesn't have contraception, right? And isn't it fascinating how God is pursuing him? You know, the hound, oh, of, yeah. the hound yeah. of heaven is sure, after him. I'm sure most of his listening audiences who are Catholic are praying for him. <laughs> yes, they are. Well, his wife just became Catholic. Yes, his wife did just become Catholic. So cool. Yeah. Well, and there was a quote that described it says that you contend that the social sciences well done cannot but illustrate the way God made man and thus are a great ally to those who uphold natural law while being a powerful threat to those who advocate the violation of natural law. So, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a that was a great quote about that. Yeah, no, no, that's it. The, the, the social science they they don't replace, they don't trump, they don't come in front of, but they do illustrate yeah. the way God made man, and they're a great adjunct assist to the divine moral law in illustrating, you know, and sort of giving people another source of confidence. It's not the main source, you know, it's secondary. Right. So, so I want to go back to your, yeah, so your career. We'll you, Thank you. <laughs> your career. Um, so it's fascinating. So you, you were in Ireland, you um, were studying. Um, it was so cool to me that God planted um, a back row of guys who were with Opus Dei to continue to, you know, to draw you. <laughs> so to, just one of them. Oh, just one. The rest of them weren't. Okay. Just the, just the motorcycle uh, uh, guy. Yeah. Rugby playing yeah, guy. Yeah. Yep. Um, but then So you started this career in clinical psychology, and then, as I said in your introduction, you practiced for about five years, but some things started to happen to cause you to go in another direction. Can you tell us about that? Because that was a fascinating story as well. Yeah, in Canada, then I came down to do the doctorate, and as the doctorate studies go on, you go back into, I went back into more practice, you know, it's part of the doctoral training. Mm -hmm. And one of the clients I had was a very tricky situation because it was incest within the family. Mm -hmm. 
uh, which is, you know, one of the most explosive things, situations you can think of. But I found out, actually, that the teenage girl was being given contraceptives at the school. Now, this is early on in the history of this sort of stuff, school clinics. People know all about it now, but I didn't know, most people didn't know about it back in the late 70s. And uh, I realized this, and then I dug into that and found, wait now, this is a federally funded program. Mm. And the more I learned about that, uh, by that stage, I was already pretty, I can't say expert, but good. I knew how to uh, treat kids and marriage and family. I developed uh, quite a few skills in that area and knew I was competent. There was a lot more to learn. There always is. Mm-hmm. But I remember realizing, wait now, this is going to undermine so many families. When the sexual goes wrong, the family gets broken. Yeah. And I said, this is the big craziness. The big craziness is here in Washington, distributing this money that's undermining family. And as a psych- clinical psychologist, I'm in the craziness business. <laughs> so gradually, I, over the next two years, I made the transition over to public policy. And then that led me back to using sociology. But I had a grounding in almost 12 years of clinical work Mm. uh, that uh, I I knew human nature in a way most people don't get to know it because you're not given that intimate knowledge of families and marriages and all the rest. Clinical psychology is not like a priest, but in one way he is. You're you access secrets and you see the way human nature yeah. really is and you find it's much the same as your own. You could go that way. Yeah. So. And so obviously it was very clear what things became huge threats to that and to the healing of the family. And so this federal program that was giving contraception to this young girl for free, I guess, probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And th- so it was, the, it was yeah. the beginning of the whole sex ed in schools, mm. which has been just massively destructive of families yeah massively it's one of the crimes against humanity yeah definitely when we come back from break we're going to hear more about um dr fagan's work especially his work with mari and and the work that he uh the things that he offers and that institute offers um and some very well-known papers that he's written including one called why religion matters so we're going to talk about that one some more as well and we're also going to hear about his favorite family room memory we're going to continue here it's what i what i love in uh Pat's story. I feel disrespectful calling him a Pat instead of Dr. Fagan or Dr. Pat. No, 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 no. Yeah. Call me Pat. Here's a warrior for the family back yeah. in the 70s where we were all play, probably blinded by, you know, oh, this is good stuff because some scientist told me it was. Right. And yet you've got a uh, social scientist, psychologist that says, there's an underlying problem here. I want to dig further in. Mm-hmm. Even more that when he presents the facts, it fell on deaf ears from the people that were, quite frankly, promoting a lot of this stuff, which tells us what we need to keep our eye on as well. Yeah, definitely. So stay tuned. We will be right back here in the family room with Dr. Pat Fagan. We'll be right back in the family room, sponsored by Versprite, right after this. In today's world, cybersecurity is critical for your business. Award-winning Versprite provides solutions to protect your company from hackers. For protection now, see versprite.com. That's V-E-R-Sprite.com. The Quest thanks Versprite for their support. 
This is Mari. I'm here with John and Craig, and we really appreciate you listening and sharing what you're learning here from the family room. We are glad that you enjoy the guests that we have, and if you are enjoying it, please let us know. If you're listening on a streaming app, you can rate us, and uh, you can make comments as well. And in order to keep this show and others going, please look to figure out how you can donate in the coming months to keep Catholic Radio on the air here in Atlanta. It's very easy to keep us going. Just go to thequestatlanta.com or use the Quest Atlanta app. The Quest presents Pro-Life Minutes. Emotional consequences from a chemical RU486 abortion are often more severe than a surgical abortion. The abortion industry advertises that chemical abortions are easier and cheaper for women. The facts are, the woman becomes the abortionist by taking an abortion pill at home. She will typically have severe contractions and bleeding and expel the baby, usually in her bathroom. In a surgical abortion, she doesn't see the baby, but in the case of a chemical abortion, she sees the baby and must decide how to dispose of the completely formed child. The woman can be emotionally traumatized, her bathroom becoming a place of recurring flashbacks. This is extremely difficult for the woman and may cause PTSD. Knowing the truth saves lives. Let's show the world that every life matters by speaking up for life at every opportunity. For more homegrown wisdom, visit thequestatlanta.com. This is Al Cresta from Cresta in the Afternoon. Catholic Radio provides many services and functions. It first of all edifies, it builds up the saints. It educates and exhorts, it keeps us doing good works. It encourages us when we need consolation. It engages the culture around us and it also evangelizes the unbaptized and does the new evangelization for the baptized. This is your home and we're always here for you. Thanks to our friends at DWTN, our programming is provided free of charge. But this station has other expenses that must be paid to keep the doors open and the lights on. Support of your local Catholic radio station helps shows like Crested in the Afternoon stay on the air and be available in your area. So no matter the amount, your gift works to make a difference for you, for others, and for the future of our Catholic radio family. Prayerfully consider making a gift right now, and we'll talk to you soon. To donate, log on to thequestatlanta.com. Ever feel like life's just too much? Maybe it's time for a change. God offers us relief and hope. So if you're feeling like you need more peace today, begin at catholicscomehome.com. Welcome back to The Family Room with Mari, John, and Craig. Sponsored by Verse Bright on AM 1160, The Quest. Welcome back. You're in the family room with Craig and Mari. John is on a respite. He needed a break from us, Mari, I think. <laughs> uh, but we're here with Dr. Pat Fagan, who uh, created Marriage and Religion Research Institute. And we've been delving into the science behind um, what he's been doing and, and his, his socio sociological, social sciences background mm -hmm. that, that's speaking truth. But uh, for my simple mind, uh, Pat, I want to really hear about your family room memory. Um, being Irish, talking about pubs, coming from a family, I think you said, of seven kids, being married, having eight children of your own, 20 grandchildren, seven of whom are in a cul-de-sac across from you. <laughs> there has to be some pretty amazing family room stories. <laughs> there are. Well, probably... Oh. One of my friends died just a short while ago, Terry Terry Horgan, in Ireland. Became a 
eminent businessman and used to come over here to the States on business occasionally and would visit with us. He was a great guy. He had so much to do with shaping my life just by whom he was. It was a bit like what probably happened to some of the apostles, a bit like, you know, when Andrew came back and said to Peter and whoever it is, John yeah. James, whoever, yeah. hey, come see this, you know? Well, when I saw Terry Organ and realized he was a devout Catholic and how he was and what he was pursuing and was in Opus Dei, um, it had a huge effect on me. In any case, one of the great family memories was Terry picture this we have eight kids four on each side of the table Teresa, my wife is at one end i'm at the other and then terry is down by the corner of one of them while he's over visiting and my youngest daughter who at the stage was probably about seven or eight and terry who had a good irish tenor voice started singing from west side story Maria, Maria, (laughs) and he was just wooing her, and she was delighted and embarrassed at the same time. (laughs) And all, you know, her brothers and sisters getting in on the thing. Um, That was a very special moment because all the family, the kids were ranging then from probably about six to 16. My oldest son, there was about 10 years in, in between them. And uh, he was coming towards the end of high school. But they were all there, and it was great family. We had great family times around the table. Mm. Uh, that's where the family lived. Actually, it was dinner time every night. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's great. I love that. Yeah, and I love the fact that you were able to share your beautiful family with your friend. And uh, what a great memory, especially now that you, he's, he's gone. It's a very simple ahead. memory. Yeah. No, those are the best. It's profound, though. Yeah, it's yeah. profound. Yeah. So right before the break, we were talking about how um, you had gone from being a clinical psychologist and then you realized through an experience with one of your clients that, oh gosh, maybe there needs to be more influence on Capitol Hill and people who are policy makers and things like that. But I think there was more to that um, that you that God used and that you were able to draw from in making that transition and influence that may have happened at the very beginning. So I think you were gonna share with us more about the first several years as a therapist. Would you go ahead and share that? Yeah, my first job as a therapist, I followed a friend of mine from Ireland who had the job before me. He was going on to do a doctorate, so I came in behind him. was in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, which is where the Great Lakes come together. Mm-hmm. Lake Superior flows into Lake Huron, and Lake Michigan almost comes up and tips it right there. And uh, that's where I learned the deepest things about uh, human nature. Uh, half my practice was helping the psychiatrists at differential diagnosis of severe psychiatric patients. The other half was working with kids. The typical referral came from general practitioners and family physicians. And uh, normally, kids in mid-childhood, Pat, would you have a look at this kid? I know it's not medical. I think it's psychological. Would you have a look at it? So I, I did, and I was a greenhorn, you know, starting off. So went very carefully. But by the third year, I realized by the end of the first year, I realized the kids were reacting to what was happening in the family, the vast majority of the cases. Mm. By the third year, I delved deep into family, family systems and acquired some family therapy skills and all the rest. And I wouldn't see the kid till I could see the whole family, mm. including dad. And sometimes it's hard for dad to break away from work. 
And I remember some dads that said, no, no, you go see. I'm not coming. I said, well, look, if you're not going to come to take care of your kid, forget about me taking care of your kid. Mm. You know, you just have to get tough with him. Yeah. <laughs> and then he came. There was, and they always came eventually. Because Algoma Steel, a big steel mill, you know, breaking away from a place like that, you can imagine. It's not easy for a guy mm. to come yeah. to. But they did. Well, what I had figured out was that I'd keep then the focus totally off the kid and onto the whole family, seeing what was going on. If I had a three-year-old, it was great. Because three-year-olds could talk, they see everything, but more important, they say everything. <laughs> so you get, you, you get to know the family much quicker. They really sped things up. And then when I had a sense of what was going on, particularly between mom and dad, and it, this was in the early 70s, most families in that part of Canada were still intact, um, I'd say to the parents, let's leave the kids at home next time. That three, four, five times, you know, uh, session, I'd get that. That, and they always said yes. And then I start working on where the conflicts were in the marriage and get them back doing well. 95% of the time, I didn't have to do a thing with the kid. Mm. The symptoms disappeared. Yeah. The symptoms that got him, the doctor to refer him, disappeared once mom and dad came back to unity and the happiness restored to the marriage. Kids thrive and need marriage and actually i 30 years later i wrote a paper that partly the consequence of all that and developing the thought every child has the right universally all times everywhere every culture every faith anywhere to the marriage of his biological parents mm. it just comes with being brought into existence because the kid didn't bring himself into existence ma'am and dad did and they owe him their marriage, because without their marriage, their good marriage, he won't become the adult he or she is meant to be or is capable of being, but he needs the parental love to get there. Mm. So they all, and, and that has huge consequences for the church and for everything and for the pro-life movement, uh, etc. Once kids hit puberty, boy and girl, they better be taught that. You now have the capacity to bring life into existence. Mm. But it is a crime to do it outside of marriage. It's a crime to the child. Yeah. And that, if we taught that in the church for a start and just get it out, that's a debate we can have. I can have that debate with anybody anywhere in the world. I don't care who they are. I'll learn it or whatever. That right of the child is there. Now, the right can't always be fulfilled because mm -hmm. if a man who's married has an affair and a kid out of well, yeah. well you know, he... You know, the right is there, and it's a, it's a gift. Marriage is always a gift. So it's not something we force, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be there when those two people face God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's one of these fundamentals that shapes everything. The whole, here's what came out of that, the unity. I began to get an inkling of what Paul, or John Paul II, a couple of years later began to develop. Uh, because he still wasn't Pope when I was, this was the mid-70s, he didn't come into 78. But by 75, 76 in Sault Ste. Marie, I had the inkling of, okay, man, dad, and the child are almost like a little trinity on earth, and there is some connection mm -hmm. or parallel. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, the more you delve into 
the nature of baptism, were made in the image and likeness of God, and God itself is a trinity, not one, it's three in one. Yeah. And that relationship, and, and you know, it's mysterious, but it's true and it's deep and it's there forever. Now, I like the application of, again, science mm -hmm. to this because too many times we get in discussions and it's always, well, that's emotional, faith only, blah, 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 blah. But here you're talking about it. And I'm not going to delve into it too far, but thanks for the confirmation because we've talked multiple times on this show. And this is not a disrespect to the, the mothers and the grandmothers and the women out there, but the importance of the man being who God called him to be and doing his job appropriately in each marriage how it strengthens the family, which then strengthens the neighborhood, which then strengthens the community, which then, you know, there, there is this, this ripple effect that you end up with a very strong society when oh, yeah. we as men step into our role and do what we're supposed to do. And I'm going to ask you the question out of that. That brings me back to, you know, you're a part of Opus Day. You took your faith very seriously. The friends you talked about did, did as well. You wrote a paper talking about why religion matters. And when I hear you and I hear about your friends and then I see, you know, the families you're talking about, to me it goes back to that religion had to be a very fundamental part of that. And in this case, the Catholic religion. Why does religion matter? It's an inherent part of human nature. Every culture, every functional culture I'm not saying all religions are the same. They're not, or they all have equal standing. But it illustrates being religious is part of human nature. And actually, you can see this. The illustration of this is Jordan Peterson and his search right now. He's going deeper and deeper and deeper all the time. Mm -hmm. And now he's talking about religion is the deepest level mm -hmm. of knowledge you know mm -hmm. he, he, he doesn't have the fullness of the faith yet i hope it's yet but um but that so that's inherent and i'd already learned that actually i remember in in apologetics as a as a high school kid back in dublin long before uh, university stuff uh, the, we had great apologetics back in the in the 60s and uh, some of those texts are just phenomenal the amount of learning we had um, lots of stories about that, but <laughs> so and you, what? Let me jump forward. After I got to Family Research Council, I had been Deputy Assistant Secretary for Family and Social Policy. Saw all the evaluation research in the U.S. was on top of the commission stuff. Commissioned lots of stuff. Then was at Heritage for 13 years, and then by the time I got to Family, I loved being at Heritage, a phenomenal place. But then I, I had an opportunity to have more money and do more things at Family Research Council. I went there. I was able to dig into all the federal surveys hmm. and analyze. There are eight federal surveys that cover loads of things, that, uh, that cover almost everything, health, income, education, um, mental health, all the big outcomes that carry both the data on family structure as well as the data on frequency of religious attendance. So you got both marriage and family. You can analyze that out of that. And there's a project people can look up now right on the, on the website called Mapping America. Just look it up. Hmm. 
federal surveys, and I've analyzed 130 different outcomes. And on every single outcome, the intact married family does best as a group. And the non-intact, the intact married family that worships God weakly, Mm. whereas the broken family that doesn't worship God at all do the worst on everything, and the intact that worships weekly do the best on everything, among adults, among kids. And let me give you the first illustration I had of that was in the Ad Health survey to realize that guess who kids who get the kids who do best, best grade point average across the United States are kids who worship weekly. Hmm. If you look at kids who worship weekly versus kids who worship a couple of times a month, a couple of times a year and never, as a group, those who worship weekly do best. Then if you add the, the, the family structure into that, then the kids who come from an intact family, they do best on all outcomes, education as a group. Put the two together and it gets even stronger. Wow. Now you see that actually on everything, on income, education, performance, health, longevity, the sexual. Guess who enjoys and has the most frequent sexual intercourse? People who are married. Intact married family that worship God weekly. Hmm. Worship has a huge effect. Wow. <laughs> Significant statistical effect. So the church hasn't so, screwed up sexuality. You know, we... <laughs> no, I mean, everybody blames the church for, you know, you're in, you're in the bedroom. Should be the healthiest. Yeah. Well, And, and it is. Actually, there's, there's very funny stuff. I got to tell you this. <laughs> to me, it's very funny. You dig into the best survey on this, and on the, this the, this survey only had the data on women. So I was able to compare evangelical women and Catholic women. And on the enjoyment of the marital act, on the enjoyment, evangelical women scored slightly the highest and slightly higher than Catholic women. But on the frequency of enjoying the marital relations, the Catholic women were slightly ahead of the evangelical women. So my advice to young men was, a young Catholic man was, find an evangelical who's converted. <laughs> <laughs> of course, my evangelical friends countered back and said, no, 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 Pat, you got to find a Catholic girl who's Converted. Become evangelical. <laughs> <laughs> so you can you play that either way. <laughs> we, we like practical I advice. <laughs> but the data is very, very clear, and it's it's very interesting in 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 the sector to see that come out. Um, so, what has been sold to kids over the last thirty, forty years by modernity on matters sexual is a total lie, mm. and leading to massive dysfunction that we see all around, and nowhere more than in the black family. Mm. The black family are the product of modern sexual abuse by government. So tell us more about that, because that's a pretty um, that's a pretty bold statement. I think it's one that those of us who have looked into this can appreciate. But tell us more about that. Well, the black family was the was, you know, it was massively fractured by slavery. Mm-hmm. Not to take away from that, and that had an awful effect. Yes, and had a lingering effect. Mm-hmm. But by 1900. The black family had reconstituted its strength, mm-hmm. and you see it in the early 1900s, the data from the 1900s, and they were beginning like forming communities, businesses, all the rest. I'm not saying it was Nirvana; it wasn't. There was still massive, you know, political injustice to them, and 
uh, racism and all the rest. But within the family, they were getting stronger mm-hmm. and got it right there. Their out-of-wedlock birth was higher than the rest, but it was pretty low, and massively low compared to today. Then in the late 1930s, Margaret Sanger, and it wasn't called Planned Parenthood then, but they they were pretty racist, actually, and they mm-hmm. targeted the black family. Yeah. And their mode of entry was they got to the black pastors, who were the natural leaders, mm-hmm. and the pig of the poke they sold them was, look, it would be better. What, do you think it would be better if they had less kids? It would be less poverty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the men, in, in, in the goodness of their heart, not having the guidance of the church and of the Catholic Church in this, then yeah, logically it seems to happen. So the black family was the first to get the pill or pre-pill, but the contraceptives of the of the thirties. And you can begin to see the breakdown of the black family begins in the late forties. Wow. And then there were many other factors going into it, but this is one of the huge ones because once you get hooked on contraception it takes sex outside of marriage immediately. And actually, one of our Nobel laureates, and uh, what's the name of the lady who's head of the, the Federal Reserve? Um, uh, Janet, no, she and Janet. her husband is a Yellen, Nobel Yellen. laureate. Was it Janet Yellen? And both of them together at the Brookings Institute, they did a, a phenomenal paper on the breakdown of the black family and its relationship to contraception. Wow. The end of shotgun marriage. And the deleterious effects this had on on the black family back in the 50s. And it just compounds. And if you, right now, this is data I did, only 17% of black 17-year-olds, if you measure at the age 17, just when they're about to leave home, go to college or whatever, only 17% are in an intact family with mom and dad. Hmm. In D.C., only 9%. Oh, wow. So, and what has happened is each generation, you've got, if you have fatherless families, right across the spectrum, you're going to have weaker outcomes. And you, we now have three, four, five generations, depending on which black family you look at, where you have this compounding weakness, given what's what's happening in their family. I'm not saying there aren't other things around them that should, that are going on that are making it worse, but this is the strongest possible. And it's an awful pity because as they were gaining freedom and more access to jobs, et cetera, we were cleaning up our act on, on things, they're going the wrong route on matter sexual. Mm. It's the single biggest cause of the weakness in the black family, the breakdown of marriage. And the data is incontrovertible. I go toe-to-toe with anybody on that. Yeah, and you're right. It was Janet Yellen and her husband, his last George yeah. Acklerloff, yeah, who did that yeah. study. So so one of the things, as we're listening to you, that's so interesting um, is that you're telling us about studies, you're telling us about facts and data that we're not necessarily hearing about, which I think is one of the reasons that you founded Mari. So can you tell us more about Mari as well as your online encyclopedia, the maripedia.org? Well, it's essentially a, a place where the work that I have done and those I've cooperated with, we have an old house there, and I'm hoping to get others to continue it as I move on. And I'm doing more coursework now on forming fathers and that. It's essentially places where we house this data, gather it, mm-hmm. knit it together, like the paper you talked about, Why Religion Matters. That was a paper where I pulled together for the first time. Nobody had done it. I did it at Heritage. 
knitted together hundreds of pieces of research and make them flow as it were in one story. It was very well received because people had never seen it uh, gathered together that way. And the mm-hmm. Washington Post actually on their Sunday edition gave it a whole half page. That was back in the 90s. Um, that was great. Heritage was very happy that that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mary, Mary.us is there as a repository of this. You can see, actually, we have the index of belonging and rejection, what I talked about by family structure in the black family. Mm-hmm. If you look at the index of belonging on Mary, you'll see the data on that. Mm-hmm on the black family versus the white versus the American Indian versus actually our strongest ethnic group are Asian Americans. Mm, yeah. They're the strongest by far on yeah. marriage. And that. So I want to make sure that our listeners know, and it'll be in our show notes as well, that it's marri.us is where you go for that. We do want to mention, make sure that you get a chance to tell us also about your course for fathers and how they need to influence their sons that you've done with John Bishop. Can you tell us just briefly the name of that course and how people can get that? The name of the course is Fathers Raising and Forming the Sexuality of Their Sons. And you can get it at myforge, M-Y-F-O-R-G-E dot O-R-G. The whole object of the course is that the father raises sons who are going to be great husbands and great fathers. And you can get the first module free by going to myforge.org. So you can sample it, see if you like it. The response has been phenomenal. There are 500 men taking it already. Mm. We only released it in November. So that's a very quick uptake. And we're just getting out. And a number of groups are negotiating for... So I think there's nothing like it, and I think it's very good. That's wonderful. How can our listeners better pray for you and your work? And how can we better pray for you in your work? Particularly pray to St. Joseph, who's the great model of the family, is the male who made, you know, God, you know, you can't, you can't speak enough about St. Joseph. And you can see the obvious connection. You see, the male is potentially the strongest link in the family or the weakest, mm. like a catalyst. He will either disrupt and dissolve the family, or he will give it phenomenal strength. That's what the male love does. That's our vocation as men, is to love our wives and our kids. And that means dying. Yep. And that takes a lot of prayer, too. Um, so, <laughs> well, commit to St. Yeah, Joseph. Pray to St. Joseph first. Thanks. That is wonderful. Perfect. So why don't we actually, based on that, why don't we close with a Hail Mary? And uh, we'll ask for the inter- intercession of St. Joseph. So... In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord Lord is with thee. thee. Blessed Blessed art thou among women, women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Jesus. Holy Holy Mary, Mother of God, God. pray Pray for us sinners, sinners, now now, and at the hour hour of our death. Amen. Amen. St. Joseph, pray for us. Amen. Amen. There, the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. So, Dr. Pat Fagan, thank you so much for being with us here in the family room today. Well, thank you. It's been my delight. Thank you very much. Thank you. And listeners, we appreciate you as well. Please join us here again next week in the Family Room, where we offer hope, encouragement, truth, and wisdom for families. Thanks for hanging out with us in the Family Room, sponsored by Versprite. For more info, go to thequestatlanta.com.